Church on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. And as always, we welcome your questions about the Bible or some issue you're facing in life that you'd like biblical counsel on or a challenge as it relates to your ministry. All you have to do is pick up the phone and call us locally. It's 525-1859. For our internet listeners, if they would like to use our toll-free number, they can. And the number is 877. The call letters WAGP 980. We have an app called WAGP. You can get it at the App Store, download it into your phone and computer, and we can be heard anywhere in the world 24 hours a day. If you would like to email your questions to us, you can email them directly here at TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. And if you call, you can go on the air live. And uh, if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question to Deb, who will take it down today, and then she'll shoot it to us here on the screen and in front of us in the studio. Rick, as always, it's great to be here for the Bible Line. It is indeed, Pastor. A number of questions have come in, and um, let's go to them right now. David writes, the border crisis is awful in New Mexico. Does the Bible say anything about our responsibility? I don't want to be harsh, but it just doesn't seem right. Well, it's a it's a great question. Um, so a, a verse that comes to mind is uh, from a sermon that the Apostle Paul preached up on Mars Hill there in uh, Athens. I stood on there just a few months ago. It's really a it's like a big rock. I don't know how else to describe it, but large enough and flat enough at the top so that uh, probably a thousand people could stand on the rock. And when you stand there behind you is the Acropolis. Uh, that raised portion there in the city of Athens where you have uh, all these pagan temples. And then um, to your right is the uh, business center and to the uh, straight in front of you is the government center. Anyway, um, he's up there on top of Mars Hill in the midst of a really thoroughly pagan city. And he appeals to general revelation and uh, ends up turning that into the gospel. He says, the God who made the world and all things in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he, God, made from one every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined, watch this now, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of of their habitation, that they should seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. 
So uh, Paul reminds us that God has determined, and the word determined here is an interesting Greek word. It's horizo. We get our English word horizon. You could say God has horizoned uh, the appointed time of nations and the boundaries of their habitations. So the Bible tells us that both the length of a nation, how long it will last, and uh, the actual boundaries of a nation are determined by God himself. And that's to be respected. Um, If you you know, cross a border without permission. I don't know how to describe it. It'd be like maybe breaking in the back door of someone's house and eating their food off the counter and then leaving. Uh, That is just uncalled for. Uh, You wouldn't do that. Well, neither should you, you know, just cross the border of a nation because God has allotted boundaries for nations. That's what the Bible teaches. Listen, a nation without boundaries is not a nation at all. So a nation is defined by its boundaries. Another passage that comes to mind is from the book of Numbers, and you probably remember it. Uh, They uh, were in the wilderness journey, and they were traveling from uh, Egypt, and it says from Kadesh, Moses then sent messengers to the king of Edom. Thus your brother Israel has said, Edomites, of course, are descendants of Esau. So he goes to the king of Edom, and they're related, you know, through blood. Your brother Israel has said, you know all the hardship that has befallen us, that our fathers went down to Egypt and stayed and so forth, and we cried out, and God delivered us. And and then he says, um, we want to cross your land. He says, please let us pass through your land. This is Numbers 20 and verse 17. We shall not pass through field or through vineyard, We shall not even drink water from a well. We shall go along the king's highway, not turning to the right or the left until we pass through your territory. So even Moses, the man of God, who is greatly esteemed by God in the scriptures, he respected boundaries. And he recognized that when he traveled through that land, he needed to come by permission. And that if he traveled through that land, well, they wouldn't take anything. On another occasion, a similar story, similar event, he says, listen, if we, if we take a drop of water or a piece of fruit, we'll pay for everything. So he's willing to, to, to back it up, and he's respectful. So boundaries are to be respected. Now, with that said, the church still is to show compassion, much like um, God, when he spoke to the nation of Israel, he said, here's the land I've given you. But remember, there was a time when you too were aliens in the land of Egypt. And remember what that was like. And so he said, you are to be compassionate towards the alien uh, that is in the land. And so God will bring people from other countries sometimes to our land. If he wasn't doing that right now in America, we'd actually be in terrible shape because our population uh, demographics by just Americans would be what we would call ZPG, zero population growth. And so it's all the influx of internationals that have come to our land. And we've seen this in the past. You know, my, my grandfather was an Irish immigrant. And he came through Ellis Island, as many Irish immigrants did. And there were Germans and there were Polish and there was Italians and Even in the area of New England where I grew up, there were whole neighborhoods that were reflective of these different ethnic groups that had come in. But eventually with time, it's like a melting pot as we've used that term in American history and people are blended together and they, you know, serve the same language in the same country and the same constitution. But if you don't guard your borders, you have real problems and we're headed for real trouble. We are already in deep trouble. 
Uh, some say as many as 100,000 have come through over the border. The numbers fluctuate from 60 to 100,000. Uh, they're finding Muslim prayer rugs at the border uh, on the other side before they cross over because they can't swim across the Rio with them. Uh, people on the Internet, Pakistanis and Somalis and others are saying, hey, this is an opportunity. and We have our people crossing over. You've got gangs coming over. Um, and if we don't do something, we're in big trouble. And many think this is a politically motivated move. I don't, I don't know. Um, I just do know that we need to protect our border and we need to be welcoming to people and compassionate to people. But on the same hand, we need to, you know, just be wise. And we could have done things a long time ago to have eradicated this problem. A meeting could have been called of all these uh, countries uh, south of Mexico from which these people are coming. And he could have met with the presidents of those nations and come up with a plan. But now it now it's being done, you know, when it's really very, very late in the process. So we need to pray for our president. God commands us to pray for all who are in authority over us. We need to pray for our leaders because uh, this could be the demise of America, these kinds of things that are happening in our nation. Anyway, it's a good question, but the Bible addresses most of these issues in life as it does the issue of borders. Let's go to the next question, Rick. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Our first caller this morning dictated their question. They would like to know, should a person who believes he or she is saved worry about their salvation if they continue to partake of a sin that brings them pleasure, but they know is sin? At what point do we cross the line between a new Christian struggling with sin over that of a mature Christian who should be able to not want to sin against God? Is that a sign the person did not experience a true conversion? Well, it's a good question because I meet a lot of people who say, you know, I'm born again. You know, I've lived like the devil the last 20 years, but, you know, I'm born again and I've been saved. I know I'm going to heaven. I may not have much when I get there, but praise God, I've been saved. And they have a very loose view of salvation. And so they would do well to meditate on the words of Christ in the Gospels or an epistle like James where he says faith without works is dead. Uh, You can say you have faith, but James says, show me your faith by your works. And so works are taught in the Bible, not as the means to salvation, but clearly as the fruit of salvation. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father who's in heaven. And so there is a new propensity uh, and desire to serve the living God when we've met Jesus Christ in salvation. Does that mean that a Christian could not have a stronghold? No, it does not. A Christian can have a stronghold. And so uh, God exhorts us to walk by the spirit and not by the flesh. He said the flesh and the spirit in opposition to one another that you may not do the things that you please. So the fact that there's an inner turmoil is usually indicative that conversion has taken place. The fact that you find sin at times pleasurable does not mean that you're not saved. Moses said there's pleasure in sin for a season. So if anyone ever tells you when you become a Christian, there's no longer pleasure in sin, they're lying to you because God's word says there's pleasure in sin for a season. If there was no pleasure, there would be no temptation. That's what makes sin tempting. And so the fact that you're concerned is a good sign, Um, but you need to really get some help here. 
And because, you know, when the New Testament gives assurance of salvation, it really does on three levels. One, uh, the finished work of Christ, the fact that Jesus didn't pay for some of our sin or most of it, but all of it, uh, we can know that we're saved. If Jesus did not completely deal with the sin problem, then we would have to help him out by deeds. And so that's what many of the cults and those who are in error, they, they teach a faith plus works results in salvation rather than faith alone in Christ results in salvation and works follow that salvation. So Jesus, one, completely paid for our sin. And on that basis, we can have assurance. The Bible also gives assurance through the inner testimony of the spirit, where the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we've become children of God. Now, sometimes people say, well, I have felt the Lord and and they may have felt his presence and they may have been close to God's kingdom. Jesus said to one man, based on a response that he gave, he said, you're very close to the kingdom of God. Implication, some are closer to salvation than others, but it's not until you cross the line and step in the kingdom that you're saved. And so sometimes people confuse the pre-salvation work of the spirit and even the conviction that he can bring uh, with actual salvation. Um, people in Luke eight that Jesus describes in the parable of the sower, they receive the word with joy. They're very excited that that's a work of the Holy spirit. Uh, they believe for a while, they, they give intellectual sense, but then they fall away. Why? Cause their salvation was in the mind only. It never reached the human heart, never really touched the human will. And so the fact that you're concerned is good, but there is victory in Jesus. You don't have to live in sin. You don't have to be a slave to sin. Jesus not only dealt with the penalty of sin, Romans 6 teaches he dealt with the power of sin. Now, there are principles that you have to apply. And so there are exhortations all the way through the word of God as to what we as believers are to do. For instance, in Romans 13. This is part of presenting yourself as a slave to righteousness. In Romans 13, he makes this statement, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its loss. Don't make any provision for the sin nature in regards to its loss. What does that mean? Well, it depends on the kind of sin you're dealing with. If you are dealing with the sin of uh, gluttony, then you make no provision. You don't buy um, things that you gluttonize on. Uh, if you're dealing with sexual sin, then you don't feed the sin nature. You, you may disconnect your internet if that what it, is what it takes. You may get rid of your television if that's what it takes. You say that's extreme. Yes, it is, but it depends how serious you are. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's what the Lord tells us to do. Uh, you might want to meditate on Proverbs 23 and verse 20, or go back and just listen to my sermon on Romans, the sixth chapter. That I think would be helpful to you. And also go to the internet website, search the scriptures.org and click on how to be filled with the spirit. I need to preach that message again. It's been many years since I've done it. It would probably be good to have a fresh audio slash video copy on the internet. Uh, nonetheless, that message is really going to be helpful because there are many Christians today who want to do what's right. They experience the tension because they've been born again, Romans 7, the good that I wish I cannot do. I do the very evil that I don't wish to do. Why? Because they're trying to accomplish it in their own power. 
It's like a man by the name of Yates who lived in Oklahoma during the time of the Great Depression who just struggled from day to day to put food on the table. And one day a Texas oil company came and said, we think there might be oil on your land and we'd like to drill some wildcat wells. And they came in and he became a millionaire over night. But actually Yates was a millionaire the whole time because he owned the land and in owning the land, he owned all the mineral rights underneath the property. And there's a lot of Christians today who, because of ignorance, they are living in spiritual poverty. And that's why you need to be in a church, one where the pastor is actually opening the word of God. Some churches give you enough to get saved, but not to mature. And so Billy Graham may not be that far off when he said 90 to 95% of the truly saved people are babes in Christ. And so people need to grow and you need to be in a church where pastors opening the word. I just got an email yesterday from a man who's a director of a national cancer Institute. And he was just telling me, he said, I'm just so tired of all these seeker churches. Can you help me with a church in my city where the pastor actually opens the Bible and will teach it to us? He has started two national cancer institutes and now has moved to a new city and they're having him do the same and um, and in this new city, he's really having trouble just finding a church that will open the Bible. And that's what we're supposed to do. And there's a lot of people in our day that are not doing that. And they're not very courageous. And actually, a mark of conversion is courage. And we need some courageous pastors who will just open the Bible. And it doesn't matter what the people think. Uh, it's What's important is what God thinks. Anyway, good question that I hope will get you started. Let's go to the next one. All right. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Morning. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, thanks for calling. How can we help today? Um, just um, trying to clear up the Bible verse I was reading this morning. I, I'm, I'm driving down a road, so I don't remember the verse, but it was in Genesis, and it's where Jacob is actually spending in the night, and he has the wrestling match, and during this wrestling match, hip is dislocated. Um, I'm just trying to see if you can help me out with the meaning behind it and who is he wrestling with and just the whole verse. There, there was a meaning behind it. Well, there is. There's a, there's a lot of meaning behind it. And uh, it's not by accident that the whole thing unfolds. He's wrestling with the angel of the Lord. And so um, the angel of the Lord is an interesting person. He's not an ordinary angel. He is an angel who is actually referred to as Yahweh. And so when you see the angel of the Lord appear in scripture, on one verse, he's called the angel of the Lord. And then the next verse, when he speaks, it says the Lord says, or he's directly referred to as God. Um, So God at times in the Old Testament came as the angel of the Lord. And um, which member of the Trinity is it? Well, I think it's God, the son. It's one of the pre-incarnate appearances of the Lord Jesus. And so what you might want to do is actually go to my series on angels, angels among us. And one of the messages that I do is on the angel of the Lord. And I go through all the passages in the Bible where the angel of the Lord appears. And so this wrestling match is one of the many appearances. It's found in Genesis 32. And of course, it says the man wrestled with him all the day until daybreak. And it's interesting because when Jacob has a dream in Genesis 28, he's converted. But when he has this wrestling match in Genesis 32, he's broken. 
um, God just does a great work in his life. And, and there's a powerful lesson here. And the lesson is, is to have power with God. You need to, you need to be broken by God. There needs to be brokenness in your heart. And so uh, this angel of the Lord is identified as such in the book of Hosea chapter 12 and verse three. We have some divine commentary by the prophet who also looks back at this event. But again, through this whole process, uh, Jacob is broken. He does not want to let go. He, he has come to the point in his life where he knows that unless God goes with him, he can do nothing. It's the principle of John fifteen five that Jesus will teach to new covenant believers. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who lives in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Without me, you can do nothing. Doesn't mean you can't be busy and active, but you can do nothing in terms of fruitfulness. So what I would suggest you do, because God brought this passage to your mind, he probably wants to take you further with it, is I would go to searchthescriptures.org. I would click on the icon for Genesis, and then I would click on this passage where I preach it in Genesis 32. I don't remember how many sermons I did out of Genesis 32, but the passage will be divided so you can see when this portion comes in. My guess is I did Genesis 32, 24 to uh, 32. In either case, if you click on that, I have an hour-long message on this. And I even touch on the angel of the Lord in the Bible and, uh, and go through this passage verse by verse. And I think that would be helpful to you. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at wagp.net. We have another caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Thank you. Good morning. Yeah. Um, I had a quick question referring to Ruth and Boaz. I understand that the marriage was was not um, illegal or anything against the law because of uh, Ruth's conversion. And uh, the God's preface was based on ethnicity. I mean, not ethnicity, but on a spiritual preface of why he didn't want them to intermarriage. Yes. And I was I was listening to one of your um, teaching on Ruth, and you made a comment of Esther chapter ten relates to relates to a, a reason why like you can be you can become a Jew. Um, where you where you can become a Jew? Yes, yes. Being born, and I I just I, I was trying to see if you can because when I was reading it, I couldn't see it. And I was asking if you could show us. Um, Explain. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. Um, in in the book of Ezra, uh, there's mm-hmm. an interesting comment that is made where you have Gentiles who become Jews. So, in what sense can a Gentile become a Jew? Well, not in terms of ethnicity. So, the term Jew is used in two ways in the Bible. Principally, those who are physical descendants. Of Abraham. Abraham is the founder of the nation of Israel. God starts a new nation through Abraham. And there's a process that unfolds for you in the book of Genesis. He has a boy named Isaac and uh, Isaac has another son and um, he has two sons and one is the son of promise and Jacob has 12 sons and they become the the heads of 12 tribes. And, and so we have this lineage that comes out of 12 tribes. And to this day, anyone who comes out of Abraham's loins are considered Jewish people. So like when an African-American becomes a believer 
he doesn't lose his roots. When a German becomes a believer, he doesn't lose his roots. When an Irishman becomes a believer, he doesn't lose his ethnicity. He's still Irish. He's still Italian. He's still German. He's still African. He's still Russian. He's still Polish, whatever the situation may be. But also the term Jew is used in a non-technical sense in the Bible of someone who acknowledges that Yahweh is the one true God, a Gentile who does. And so they're converted religiously, not ethnically, but religiously to Judaism. And so when you think of Ruth and Boaz, it's an interesting marriage because she's a Moabitess. And the Moabites were actually one of Israel's enemies. But she, her, her um, husband, uh, you know, is one of the sons of Naomi, uh, ends up marrying her, and it's very clear that she is a true believer. Now, we might debate, was she a believer when um, her husband who died married her, or did she become a believer after? Well, we could debate that, but the fact is, it's crystal clear that she is a believer. Your God will be my God, and she acknowledges that the God of Israel is the one true God. And so for her to marry... Uh, a Jew was not forbidden. Now, God forbade Israel not to marry the Canaanite nations around them. And the reason he gave was because they were unbelievers. You intermarry with them and your heart's going to be drawn away into foreign gods and you're going to follow their foreign gods. And so that's why God put the restriction. And so even in the new covenant, when you come to second Corinthians six, it's very clear. A believer is not to marry an unbeliever. Those are really the only restrictions on marriage. Now, that's not to say that when people marry from different races or different ethnicities that there might not be challenges, because very often, even even in the same ethnicity, if someone from the north marries someone from the south, uh, there, there can be challenges because of the different cultural uh, expressions and the way people are raised in the north, say, versus the south. But none of those things are you know, are, are things that cannot be overcome. So the only restriction God puts on marriage in the Bible is a believer is not to marry an unbeliever. And so Boaz marries within the will of God and that he marries Ruth, who is a Moabite, and she becomes a follower of Israel. And what's really interesting when you come to Matthew chapter one, uh, she is in the lineage of Christ. And so through her, her children, because the lineage is followed through the male, um, she ends up becoming, you know, one of the ancestors of, of Mary, who marries Joseph, who, of course, uh, ends up uh, giving birth to the Lord Jesus. Anyway, that's a great question. I really appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. They're stacking up here. Indeed, they are. 525-1859. If you have a question on this morning's Bible line, you can go live or dictate it, as our next caller did. This person knows that a Christian should not have anger and resentment toward another Christian, but what should a Christian do if they find out a person seriously wronged them before they became Christians? Is it natural for us to have a feeling of wanting revenge, and how do we work this out in our own heart? Well, it's natural because you still have a fallen, sinful, Adamic nature. And when when you become a child of God, you don't lose the nature that we inherited through Adam. We still have that nature. So yes, there are, there are some things that we'd say are natural, but they are to become unnatural 
for the Christian because God wants us to live a supernatural life. And so God says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So the reason that Paul even has to command Christians at Rome, and we're coming to this in our exposition of the book of Romans. Right now we're in the 11th chapter. But when we begin the 12th chapter, we move into the applicational section of Romans. And there's so much, even in the 12th chapter, I expect we'll probably do five or six sermons just on that chapter. But when you come to this uh, section, the fact that he even has to command and remind believers that vengeance is God. The reason he has to do that is because we can be tempted to take our own revenge. And so how do you release a person when they've wronged you? Well, um, one, you've got to take responsibility for anything that you've done. Um, He has just said, if possible, so far as depends on you, be at peace with all men. Most of the time in most conflicts, it's not a hundred percent zero kind of deal where he was a hundred percent wrong and I wasn't wrong at all. There, I admit there are times when that happens, but most of the time that's not the case. You say, well, he's 99% wrong and I'm only 1% wrong. Okay, then take responsibility for your 1%. That's what you have to do. And so if possible, meaning it's not always possible, But if possible, be at peace with all men. And so sometimes in humility, we need to go and say, forget, forget pointing out their error just to say, hey, I need to take responsibility for me. And uh, this is what I did. And I need to ask you to forgive me. What if they don't forgive? Well, then you've done all that you could do. Your heart is clear before the Lord, if possible, as much as it depends on you. Um, But sometimes, you know, again, people have wronged us and injustices have been done to us. And that's part of living in a fallen world. And the Apostle Peter reminds us that we are to respond to injustices in a godly way, much like Paul tells us here, you're kind even to your enemy, because um, he says, for instance, in 1 Peter chapter 1, 2 and verse 20, what credit is there if when you sin and you're harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right, and you suffer for it, and you patiently endure. This finds favor with God. In other words, if you do something and you know, you're reaping what you've sown, well, that's understandable. But what's really pleasing to the Lord is when you're doing what's pleasing to him, and then someone wrongs you, and you patiently endure it. And then, of course, he gives the application for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. So we are to mimic our Savior, the Lord Jesus, if we've been born again. He's called us for this purpose. And he says, think about the Lord Jesus. I mean, if there was anyone of whom you could say uh, he was 0% wrong and his opponents were fully responsible, it's the Lord Jesus. He never committed any sin. There was never even a, a word of deceit in his mouth. He didn't, he, when he was reviled, he didn't even revile in return but he entrusted himself to God. And of course it resulted in our salvation. So we've been called for that purpose to follow that. And so it begins with forgiveness. You have to forgive people. Uh, How do you forgive people? 
Well, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32, it says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. How? Just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. So when you think of forgiveness in the New Testament, it comes on two levels. On the one hand, it's a mark of conversion. On the other hand, it's a mark that you're in fellowship with the Lord. So on the one hand, it's a mark of conversion. Do you remember that occasion when um, Peter came and he said, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Should I forgive him up to seven times? That was the popular rabbinical teaching of the day. And Jesus said, no, up to 70 times seven, an infinite number of times. And then he tells the parable, if you're a member of a man who owes his king 10,000 talents about you know, $20 million in silver content by today's standard. And uh, he has to pay up and he begs for mercy because it's an impossible debt. And the king has compassion and he releases him from the dead. And then if you remember the same man, he goes home and he has a servant in comparable terms. He doesn't owe him $20 million, but $100. And uh, he begs for mercy, but he shows none. And of course, the point of the parable is that if God has truly shown you mercy, if God has released you of your $20 million debt, a mark that you've been converted is you'll release people of their $100 debts. And so on the one hand, it is a sign of conversion. On the other hand, it's a sign of being in fellowship with God because God would never have to command us in Ephesians 4.32 to forgive each other and to be kind to each other if it was automatic if it meant we would always do it. So on the other hand, it's a mark of someone who's in fellowship with God. Years and years ago, I had a couple come into my office and the only way they would come in for counseling and someone convinced them to come in and see me, their their marriage was on the throes of a divorce. And so they said, okay, we'll, we'll do it just because we respect you. And they came in and they saw me in respect to their friend. And the only way they would see me and we had prearranged this is if they didn't have to look at each other. So we literally turned the seats back to back and I gave them a little exercise to do. I gave them both a, a, a yellow pad of paper and I said, now this is important. And if I'm going to help you, you have to listen to what I say. I for the next 15 to 20 minutes, they were both confessing born again Christians. I said, I want you to write down everything you think God has ever forgiven you of. No one's going to see it, but you but I want you to write down everything God has ever forgiven you of. This is important. And so they did that. And I came back about 20 minutes later and they both had several pages. And now I said, I want you to write down what it is that your husband has done, what it is your wife has done that is so, you know, got you ripped that you want to call off this marriage. And he had like two lines and she had one line. And then we looked at this parable that if God could forgive our 20 pages of writing, can't we forgive our two lines of writing? If God could forgive our $20 million debt, can't we forgive our $100 debts that people have against us? And so the only way to be kind and tenderhearted sometimes is to forgive each other, remembering how God has forgiven you in Christ Jesus. And so that's a real starting place to victory. All right, let's go to the next question, Rick. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. as has this listener who writes, I just learned in Sunday's sermon that women should not teach men. Would you clarify this for me so I know if I'm doing something wrong? 
I am an NRA certified firearms instructor. My husband and I have a business. I teach men, women, and children. I teach a few classes per month when my kids are spending time with grandma. Should I only be teaching women? It's a good question. I think it's probably misunderstanding the exhortation that Paul is giving in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Um, he's dealing with um, God's people as they're gathered together, though you could certainly apply it in other realms. And the reason I even mention that is more and more in the parachurch organizations, you will have women who stand up and they teach the Bible to mix the audiences of men and women. And and when they look at, you know, First Timothy 2, uh, I do not allow a woman to exercise or teach authority over a man, but to remain quiet. They say, well, that applies to the local church. That doesn't apply to us as a parachurch organization. Or some churches will even say, well, that applies to the worship service, but it doesn't apply to the Sunday school class. And so if a woman wants to teach a, a couple's class, then she's okay on doing that. Well, no, that's not what the text is saying. Any more than when the Apostle Paul makes a very clear statement, I like likewise, right before this, just two verses before, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. Uh, does he mean by that? Well, you only have to dress modestly and discreetly and not seductively and sexually in the church service. But, you know, if it's in a Bible study or at work, you know, it doesn't apply there. Of course not. That's absolutely absurd and ridiculous. And so what kind of teaching, though, is he speaking to? He's speaking of opening the scriptures. And that is a ministry that God has given to men uh, as it relates to a mixed audience. Women can teach the scriptures. Some women have the spiritual gift of teaching. Some women have the spiritual gift of pastor teacher which is not only a teaching gift, but there's a shepherding dimension to it as well. And they are to use that in caring for other women and shepherding other women. But God is very clear that when it comes to teaching the word of God in the church or in a Bible study or in a Sunday school class, if the audience is mixed, that men are to take the leadership. Now, women say all the time, I hear different things. They'll say, well, my pastor gave me permission. So I'm under his authority and that's why I'm doing it. No pastor has authority to give you authority when God expressly forbids it. He has no authority to do that. And so when Beth Moore, you know, preaches at a big church in Houston, she says, I'm under my pastor's authority. Her pastor has no authority to do what God's telling her to do. It's just wrong. And it's a twisting and an abuse of scripture. And it's trying to be politically correct and try to, you know, snuggle up to the world so that the world will like us because we don't want to be too weird. And so the church is becoming feminized where men who are to be the leaders have taken a back seat. And that's really sad. And it's contributing to the whole, uh, you know, feminizing of young men and contributing to homosexual homosexuality in our culture. It's terrible. I wouldn't want to be, I wouldn't want my children or grandchildren to be in a church where the young boys are going to be feminized. That's an awful thing to expose your children to do. And men, you need to man up and take the leadership. And women need to hold men accountable to say, look, if there's no man who wants to teach the Sunday school class, I guess we're not going to have one. They'll step up. Uh, Someone will step up, but it'd be better not to have one than for you to break the clear teaching of scripture. Look, teaching firearms has nothing to do with what Paul is talking about. 
So certainly um, you could teach a firearms class if that's, you know, something you're gifted with. It doesn't have anything to do with this. Now, that's not to say that you're not under your husband's authority and that he uh, should, uh, you know, guide you accordingly because there's a lot of women doing some things that their husbands don't want them to do. But all things being equal, that's not what this text is dealing with. Good question, though. I appreciate it. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. Our next listener says uh, they would like to know what a Christian should do if they know that a fellow Christian is involved with sexual immorality and has no intention of changing his behavior. In Corinthians, we're told not to keep company with them, so should we totally separate ourselves from this person? Should we advise them to get Christian counseling or go to the elders? What is our responsibility as Christians? Well, it's a, it's a good question, and God gave us some you know very clear detail as to how we're to handle such a situation. So we need to heed it. If your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. So the first step is a very private step. Um, And he's not talking about just any kind of sin. He's talking about the kind of sin that brings disrepute on the cause of Christ. And if you want to a more detailed answer, you might want to go to searchthescriptures.org. And I taught a course on ecclesiology. Ecclesia is the Greek word that's translated church. It literally means the called out ones. And so uh, one of the sections in that whole series deals with church discipline. So if your brother sins, you go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And so if he doesn't listen to you, you take a couple of witnesses with you. Because uh, there's strength in numbers. You're not ganging up on him. You're just um, affirming what God clearly says. But if he refuses to listen to them, then you tell it to the church. Then then it becomes a church issue um, where the whole church deals with it in a disciplinary way. And the whole idea of church discipline is almost being just virtually ignored in our day by evangelical Christians. So if you want to shack up with someone and not be married to him. You can be a member in good standing. We, we have people more and more who come to the church, and I'm so glad they do because I want to reach them for Christ, who, you know, fill out even visitor cards on Sunday morning, and they have the same address but different last names. And sometimes I need to be careful because I, I realize sometimes you've got a woman, say, who's keeping her maiden name. I don't think she should do that, but some women do because, again, they've been feminized by our culture in a negative way and not in a healthy way. Uh, when you get married, your husband becomes the head of your home. And so he doesn't take your last name. You take his last name. Where does that come from? It comes from the Bible that a new family has started with a new head. Your family grows when you have children, but a new family begins the day you get married and you make that covenant with God at the marriage altar. And so, you know, we we live in a day where people, where immorality is just common. And so sometimes people will even come to our Meet the Pastor meeting and they'll receive Christ. And they'll say, well, you know, we received the Lord tonight as our Savior. And I know they're living together. And I say, well, if you really did, then, you know, you need to, you know, move out. You need to, you know, clean this area up for you to become a member of Community Bible Church and for me to be willing to baptize you. Because if their conversion is real and they're staring right in my face what the New Testament would consider a church discipline issue, 
um, then for them to even become a member, there has to be some fruit in keeping with genuine change of mind, genuine repentance, genuine faith in Christ. And so um, very often they'll, they'll do that. They'll move out or they'll get married. And then I'm willing to consider baptizing them. So, no, this is a church discipline issue, and it's an important issue. First uh, Corinthians 5, they had gone way past that. He said uh, in First Corinthians 5, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a different issue, but it is the same issue and that it's an issue that they should have already have dealt with. But he's dealing with it there on a different level where he says it's actually reported. Uh, the word reported is akuete in Greek. It, you could paraphrase it. It's broadcasted, meaning it's well known. Everybody in the church knows it, that there is immorality among you. An immorality of such a kind that does not even exist amongst the Gentiles here, a synonym for pagan. Namely, that someone, he says, has his father's wife. He said, even the pagans find this disgusting for you to sleep with your stepmother. But that's what they were doing. And Paul said they didn't exercise church discipline, so they should have. And you should have already removed them from their midst. Why? Because if you don't, the world throws up all over your church. Oh, yeah, those people at Community Bible Church, they, they, they say that they're born-again Christians. But, you know, you got people sleeping together, folks getting drunk, you know, gay people married. You know, they can do all these things, and it really doesn't matter. And we lose our salt, and our light is just diminished. And there's uh, no reason for the church uh, to have a credible witness at that point in the world. It's not our likeness to the world that wins the world. It may in terms of uh, false conversions. It's our distinctiveness from the world that truly wins the world to Christ. So when he says then in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, I did not at all mean with the people of this world. Well, we need to win these people to Christ. We need to be compassionate towards people who are lost and try to win them to Christ, whether they're living in sexual sin of adultery or fornication or homosexuality. We need to love and be compassionate towards these people. But with any so-called brother, if he should be an immoral person, that's a different story. Um, They are to be removed from the fellowship of the church. And at that point, uh, your fellowship with them breaks until there is genuine repentance. So that's how God has dictated it. But again, if you want a more detailed explanation, go to the course on ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, and click on the lesson that deals with the subject of church discipline, and I deal with it in an hour on a Wednesday night message. All right. Our next question comes from Doug in Nashua, New Hampshire. He writes, I was listening to a message, I think on the 8th of July, about apostles and disciples, and apostles were called by God, such as Paul. I didn't hear all of the sermon, wanted to hear it on one of your podcasts, but I can't find it. Hopefully you can help. Thanks and God bless. Well, um, Rick could probably help you more than I could. Um, I know right now we're, we've been going through First and Second Timothy, so he would go back to July 8th. Uh, what was playing on July the 8th at Search the Scriptures? It was called The Making of a Man of God from okay, 2 Timothy. So that would be from 2 Timothy. I think I preached that in the first chapter. Mm-hmm. So if you go to uh, searchthescriptures.org and you click on 2 Timothy, the book of 2 Timothy, and you click on, I think it might have been the first or second sermon in that series, 
Um, I think it was actually my first sermon that I heard. I don't know. I preached it 10, 12 years ago. Um, and you click on uh, the first chapter because that's where the message comes from. Then uh, you can listen to the whole message in an uh, uninterrupted way. What what the what we've done is uh, it, it is oh, I see he has it here. First Timothy one. What is it, Rick? Uh, one to seven. One to seven. The, it is the first. So it's the very the first sermon in in that series. And so uh, when you hear a, a message on search the scriptures, it's a sermon that I preach. I usually preach for an hour on Sunday mornings. And then Rick divides it up generally into three messages. It covers over three days. And so you may have heard just a portion of it. I don't remember what I said exactly, but I guess I probably said that while all apostles are disciples, not all disciples are apostles. And so sometimes we lo- use the term disciple in a, in a loose way. And we say, well, the disciples, meaning the twelve. Um, and sometimes it's not a reference to the 12. It's just to a follower of Christ. In fact, the word disciple isn't always even a reference to a genuine believer. The word mathetes is a Greek word that just means a learner. And so there are different kinds of disciples in the New Testament. There are curious disciples who are just learners. They're following Christ. They're listening to his teaching, but they haven't made a decision. And then there's committed disciples. Uh, sometimes the word is used synonymously with conversion. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. It doesn't say go and do discipleship of all nations. That's what a lot of people want to make that verse to say, because they want to hide under the banner of discipleship so that they don't have to risk being evangelistic. But the Great Commission of Matthew 28 is in deference to the limited commission given earlier in that gospel when he says, don't go into the way of the Gentiles, go only to the house of Israel. But then he broadens the commission after Israel is in unbelief. And he says, now I want you to go to all peoples, all nations, make disciples of all people. How do you make a disciple? Through the preaching of the gospel, because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. You baptize them. That's the first mark of genuine conversion. Then you teach them. Now, that teaching process we might call discipleship, but the word discipleship actually doesn't even appear in the New Testament. And how discipleship takes place, well, that's a whole other issue. But anyway, um, go back and listen to that message. It's The entire message can be heard at one sitting there at searchthescriptures.org. All right. Our next caller is not from this area, but is listening to us. She'd like to know your view on whether a Christian is free to marry again if his or her husband divorced them even though they did not want to stay in the marriage. Neither husband nor wife is married again, but there is no desire for reconciliation on the wife's part. Now, what does the Bible say? This caller will replay the Bible line to hear your answer as they are driving through the area. What I would suggest you do is uh, there's two sermons that you could listen to. One is on Matthew 19, I think, verses 1 through 12. And I entitled it, Jesus and Divorce. Uh, you could listen to that sermon. You could also listen to the sermon on Malachi 2.16, either God of Israel hate divorce, or you could listen to uh, Romans 7, 1 through 4, where Paul uses marriage as an illustration of our connectiveness to the Old Testament law. And his point is clear that only death breaks the marriage covenant. So you're living in a situation where even most evangelical pastors don't really debate. Um, There is debate over whether or not remarriage is permissible if reconciliation is impossible. 
But what you're telling me is neither of you have been remarried. And because neither of you been, have been remarried, then reconciliation is still possible. You say, but he's not interested. It could turn on a dime. What if you got on your knees and you said, God, look, I, you know, I don't even like this guy. And I didn't want to get a divorce, but he divorced me against my will. There was a time, though, you did like him. There was something in him that you saw that attracted you to him by which you wanted to marry him. But for whatever reason, the marriage is, uh, without me knowing any of the details, is now dissolved and a divorce has taken place. But reconciliation is still possible. It's not over just because a divorce has gone through. It's not over until someone remarries. Then it's over. Then reconciliation based on Deuteronomy 24 is absolutely impossible. Uh, If someone divorces his wife and he marries a second time, and then he even divorces his second wife, God said to go back to your first wife is an abomination. Why? Because then you have a basically a form of legalized adultery in God. Anything God calls in the Old Testament as an abomination, I promise you is still an abomination today. But that hasn't happened. And so if you got on your knees and you said, God, I don't even want to be married to this guy, but I'm willing to be willing and of course, the reason you don't want to be married to him is, you know, I don't know what he did to you, but, uh, or what you did to him, or I don't, I don't know any of the details, but I, most of the time when people get a divorce, they do so because all hope is gone that things are going to be better or their marriage has been so poor and very often a third party enters in and they're infatuated and they think they're in love and, you know, and so the marriage dissolves, um, but the fact is, is if you just said, God, I'm willing to be willing, and, it, and it, if this man could really change, and he could find Christ, and you showed me that, and, and, um, and then he says, honey, I, I, I'd like to think about working on our marriage again, you would clearly see God's hand. So I think you're, you're giving up too easily. And the culture would say, even the Christian culture would say, go ahead, you know, because so many have been down that road. And they, you know, you deserve to be happy. Just, you know, go ahead, start dating, find somebody else. But that would not be my encouragement to you. And if you listen to the sermon on Matthew 19, I think you will find out why. And they can go to searchthescriptures.org and uh, just check out those various uh, messages. Also uh, at wagp.net, since this person's uh, happens to be and, driving And there's down a the phone app, too, for Search the Scriptures. So if you go to the App Store... You can download on your Apple or Droid phones. Uh, just type in Search the Scriptures. It's, there's another organization, .com, but I don't think they have an app. Uh, we're searchthescriptures.org, and I think we're the only ones with an app by that name. And you can download it, and you can listen through your phone You know, just about any time. It's convenient for you when you're out running or walking or driving in the car. And, and that will be a help to you if you want to study God's Word further. Well, we're out of time today, but we certainly were not out of questions. There's always more, Rick, and there's always another day in the grace of God for us to come back if the Lord will allow us and to be able to interact with you once again. But we're so glad you could be with us today. If you live within a 50-mile radius of Beaufort County and you need a church home, we'd love to have you visit this Sunday at Community Bible Church. You can go to communitybible.com. CommunityBibleChurch.us and get all the details. Have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ.